Chapter 18 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 18 The Sons of Space. When we lift our eyes to the heavens on any clear, moonless night, apparently innumerable luminous points of all degrees of brightness attract our attention. They are fixed in position relatively to one another, and they rise and set like the sun. These are the stars, the stars proper, as distinguished from the planets or wandering stars. These stars are the same orbs which shone down on Job and Homer and the ancient writers of thousands of years ago. And it is a solemn thought when we look upward to the star-spangled heavens that the same constellations and star groups met the gaze of generations upon generations which have long since passed away. Homer and Hesiod both refer to the constellations. Job mentions Orion and the Pleiades, and also, it is believed, the Great Bear. This fact proves that long ago, before astronomy was founded on a scientific basis, the early stargazers had already divided the sky into constellations and had given to them names. These star groups are recognized by astronomers today, and one of the first steps for the beginner in astronomy is to learn the constellations. Just as in botany and geology, respectively, it is necessary to know the various flowers and the different classes of rocks by name, so in astronomy it is essential to know the constellations and to be able to follow them throughout the changing seasons. Most people are familiar with the Great Bear or Ursa Major, or at least with its most prominent part, the Plow. The Plow is not the most conspicuous constellation but it is visible all the year round, and its shape is very easily remembered. But its position varies from month to month. It is essential to remember that the aspect of the heavens changes with the seasons. Not only do the stars appear to go round the earth once in 24 hours, but, owing to the apparent motion of the sun, the stars appear to rise and set four minutes earlier every night. The result is a constant change, gradual but steady, in the position of the stars at any given time, and at the end of the year the revolution is completed and the stars return to the places which they occupied a year before. One star in the heavens, however, scarcely changes its position at all. This is a fairly bright object in the northern sky known as the pole star so-called because the axis of the earth points almost exactly to it. That is to say, were we standing exactly at the North Pole, we should see the pole star almost exactly overhead. The pole star therefore remains practically fixed in position, while all the stars in the sky appear to revolve round it. The farther the star from the pole, the wider the circle which it appears to describe. Thus, the stars of Ursa Minor, the constellation in which the pole star is situated, describe smaller circles than the stars in the plow. But even the stars in the plow describe a relatively small circle. They are never below the horizon, 
and their ceaseless revolution round the pole is an index of the changing seasons. For instance, in the spring evenings, the plow is almost directly overhead. In summer evenings, it is in the northwest. In autumn evenings, it is low down in the north. In winter evenings, in the northeast. On the opposite side of the pole from the plow is the constellation Cassiopeia. It is shaped like the letter W. Between Cassiopeia and the plow is Auriga, a star group dominated by a brilliant star known as Capella. And on the other side of the pole from Auriga is Lyra, another star group also dominated by a bright star known as Vega. These four constellations are almost always visible, though sometimes Auriga and Lyra are lost in the haze of the horizon. In England, these two stars disappear for a certain time in the haze of the horizon, but in Scotland and northern latitudes, they are nearly always to be seen. These four constellations, moving around the pole, constitute what has been well named the Great Star Clock of the North. As Mr. E. W. Maunder has said, to watch these northern constellations, as they follow each other in ceaseless procession round the pole, is one of the most impressive spectacles to a mind capable of realizing the significance of what is seen. We are spectators of the movement of one of nature's machines, the vastness of the scale of which, and the absolutely perfect smoothness and regularity of whose working, so utterly dwarf the mightiest work accomplished by man. Once a knowledge of the northern heavens has been gained, it is a comparatively easy matter to learn the names and outlines of the remaining constellations. Each season has its own particular groups. For instance, Orion, Taurus, and Canis Major are the great constellations of winter, even though they may be seen in spring and autumn. But it is in winter that they are seen to most advantage, and that they are visible at the most convenient hours of the night. Similarly with the other stars. In spring we have Leo, Virgo, and Boötes dominating our skies. In summer we have Lyra, Scorpio, Hercules, Corona Borealis. In autumn, Cygnus, Aquila, Aries, Perseus, and other groups. As the seasons advance, the reappearance of a familiar constellation lends a new charm and interest to the evening walk. Not only the constellations themselves, but the stars which compose them have their own designation. Some of the brighter stars, such as Sirius, Vega, Arcturus, and Capella, have proper names. But the vast majority are designated by letters of the Greek alphabet. Thus, the bright star Aldebaran is also known as Alpha Tauri, Tauri being the genitive of the Latin noun Taurus. Similarly, Sirius is Alpha Canis Majoris. When the Greek letters in each constellation are exhausted, numbers are used also with the genitive of the Latin noun. Thus, we talk of 61 Cygni, 42 Comi Berenices, etc., so much for the stars as they appear. But the science of astronomy enables us to understand what the stars really are. To us they appear little twinkling points of light suspended above the clouds, useful on a moonless night. Astronomy teaches us that, 
so far from being merely little points of light, the stars are suns. This great truth gradually dawned on mankind. Even Copernicus had very hazy notions as to the nature of the stars. But as astronomy developed, and as better instruments were invented, our information concerning the distant orbs increased, until today our knowledge of the stars is considerable. It was the great Sir William Herschel who first studied the stars systematically. And so many and important were his discoveries, and so great was the interest in the stars aroused by his investigations, that since the commencement of his work, stellar astronomy, as distinguished from planetary astronomy, has gone from triumph to triumph. The stars are suns. This is the first great truth which we must bear in mind. Very insignificant they seem, even the brighter objects among them being almost obliterated by the moonlight, utterly extinguished by the sunlight, and seeming very small and unimportant beside Jupiter, Venus, and Mars. As we saw in preceding chapters, distance is often very deceptive. The moon, for instance, shines many times more brightly than Jupiter, and yet it belongs to an altogether inferior order of bodies. It is only a satellite, the attendant of our world, while Jupiter is a planet many times larger than the Earth. Jupiter shines many times more brilliantly than Sirius, the brightest of the stars. Yet Jupiter is to the stars as the moon is to Jupiter. For the stars are suns, and Jupiter sinks to utter insignificance compared with even the faintest of the stars. It belongs to an altogether inferior order of bodies. It is the vast distance of the stars which explains their apparent insignificance. A distance so vast that for many years it was hopeless to attempt to measure it. In a previous chapter, explanation was made of the principle of measurement of the celestial distances and of the meaning of the term parallax. If the measurement of the distances of the sun and planets is difficult, it will easily be understood how much more difficult is the measurement of the distances of the faraway stars. The fact that the stars showed no measurable displacement greatly perplexed Copernicus. It was argued, and rightly, by the opponents of the Copernican system, that if the Earth had an annual revolution round the Sun, there ought to be a corresponding displacement of the stars, owing to the observer's change of position. But the most careful measurements of the astronomers of that day failed to show any displacement. Copernicus had therefore to claim for the stars a much greater distance than he was willing to. For in those days men had a very inadequate idea of the universe. Tycho Brahe, the last of the great pre-telescopic astronomers, also attacked the question and attempted to find this displacement, but he failed. After the invention of the telescope, many attempts were made, but in vain. The greatest astronomers were baffled, among them such men as Bradley and Herschel. And it was not until the third decade of the 19th century that the first milestone of infinity, so to speak, was reached. Three attempts were made independently to measure this displacement. 
1835, the German astronomer Struve commenced a series of measurements on the bright star Vega. But the distance which he deduced from his measurements proved so far from the truth that the result was practically useless. Other two attempts proved more successful. The German astronomer Bessel succeeded in measuring the distance of a faint little star of the fifth magnitude numbered 61 in the constellation Cygnus. At the same time Thomas Henderson, the great Scottish astronomer, afterwards Astronomer Royal of Scotland, measured the distance of what has proved to be the nearest star. While employed as the Astronomer Royal at the Cape of Good Hope, he made a series of observations on the brilliant star known as Alpha Centauri, one of the brightest stars in the heavens, and he succeeded in measuring its distance. This distance is about 25 billions of miles. Such figures are unthinkable. The entire solar system is about 5,000 millions of miles in diameter. A great diameter, it is true, but inconsiderable when compared to the enormous distance of the nearest star. Our solar system is indeed a little island in space, a mere speck in the greater system of the stars. It is difficult to obtain a true idea of this vast distance. The late Dr. Dalmage, in his book Astronomy of Today, gives an unique illustration which should help the reader a little, as it were, in comprehending the incomprehensibleness of this distance. What is a million? It is a thousand thousands. But what is a billion? It is a million millions. Consider for a moment. A million of millions. That means a million, each unit of which is itself a million. Here is a way of trying to realize this gigantic number. A million seconds make only eleven and a half days and nights, but a billion will make actually more than thirty thousand years. An idea of the immense distance of the nearest star may be gained from consideration of the fact that if the distance from the Sun to Neptune were represented by ten feet, Alpha Centauri would be fourteen miles away. But the true method by which we can properly comprehend the distances of the stars is by considering the velocity of light. Light crosses the diameter of the entire solar system in eight hours. Yet it takes about four years to span the gulf which separates our system from the nearest star. What, then, of the more distant stars? 61 Cygni is about 53 billions of miles away and light requires about seven years to reach us from that orb. Sirius, the most brilliant star in the sky, is distant 58 billions of miles, and light is eight years on the journey. In the vast majority of cases there is no visible displacement of the stars in the sky, and their distances cannot be measured. An idea of the great difficulty of measuring this parallax or displacement may be gathered from the remark of an American writer, Mr. G. P. Service, that the displacement is about equal to the apparent distance between the heads of two pins placed an inch apart and viewed from a distance of 180 miles. The wonder is not that astronomers have measured the distance of so few stars, but that they have succeeded in measuring the distances of any. 
comparatively few distances have been measured with any approach to accuracy. A number have been measured roughly, and a number estimated. It might be supposed that the brightest stars, those of the first magnitude, are nearest to the Earth, but such is not the case. Sirius, it is true, is among the nearer stars, but it is at a greater distance than 61 Cygni, an insignificant little star of the fifth magnitude. Thus we see that, just as there are great diversities among the planets, so the stars are far from being all of the same size. A tolerably accurate measurement of the distance of the brilliant star Arcturus has been made. So vast is the distance that light takes over 200 years to travel to our system from its glowing surface. How enormous, therefore, must be the star which shines so brilliantly from so vast a distance. The diameter of Arcturus is believed to be about 62 millions of miles. Compared with Arcturus, our Sun, great and splendid orb as he seems to us, is a puny dwarf. Mr. Garrett P. Service says of this enormous Sun, Imagine the Earth and other planets constituting the solar system removed to Arcturus and set revolving round it in orbits of the same forms and sizes as those in which they circle about the Sun. Poor Mercury! For that little planet it would indeed be a jump from the frying pan into the fire, because as it rushed to perihelion, the point of its orbit nearest the Sun, Mercury would plunge more than 2,500,000 miles beneath the surface of the giant star. Venus and the Earth would melt like snowflakes at the mouth of a furnace. Even faraway Neptune would swelter in torrid heat. Another enormous sun is Rigel, one of the two brilliant orbs in Orion. So distant is this body that Sir David Gill utterly failed to measure its distance. Capella, in Auriga, is yet another gigantic orb. According to Mr. Gore, it is about 14 millions of miles in diameter, and is equal in volume to 4,000 suns such as ours. A little reflection on these enormous sizes shows us that everything in the universe is relative. To us on Earth, a range of mountains is gigantic. The Earth itself is so vast that we cannot conceive of it as a globe at all, and we can only regard a portion of it at a time. And what of the Sun? To us its size is overwhelming. We cannot realize a diameter a hundred times that of our Earth. And as to the stars, we may repeat the figures which denote their diameters, but we cannot grasp what these figures mean. The stars themselves are of all sizes and at all distances. All are enormously distant, but some are much nearer than others. All are enormously large, but some much larger than others. Of the 2,000 visible at a time to the unaided eye, we have measured the distances of very few, and have calculated the sizes of the merest handful. And yet at the very beginning of our investigations among the suns of space, we learn that indeed, one star differeth from another star in glory. End of chapter 18. 
Read by Andrea Kotzer.